Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends, Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Greetings and welcome back to Dollars and Sensibilities. I am Bill McBride, here with my friend and co-host, a man who needs no introduction when he walks in a room, as the room has been waiting for him for a long, long time. Mr. Andrew Martz. Andrew, how are you today? Where do you come up with these introductions? For <laughs> like, <laughs> the moment, top of my who's, head. Who's writing this, this material for you? Who are you hiring? I, I got to be honest, of all the research we do, I have the most fun with the introduction now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we got an episode today about your debt and your mindset. The world of finance occupies a vast headspace of land with castles and thatched roof huts that intertwine to make a kingdom where we strive to understand the economy and its inhabitants. Underneath the kingdom, however, lies a dark labyrinth of catacombs. Where are we taking this metaphor, Andrew? Are you ready for this? I don't know, but like if you don't read the token J.R. Rawlings and you know <laughs> the Hobbit, like I don't know what half of those words were, bro. Catacombs. <laughs> it's, it's the the graves. I'm a numbers Paris. guy. It's the graves underneath Paris. I'm gonna I'm gonna with catacombs and thatched hut roofs and here we go. Is this Simply. an episode of Harry Potter or Dollars and Sensibility? Maybe maybe this episode is going to speak. To, uh, to the Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings fans because right. the castles are the market, right? The huts are the people and the catacombs are debt. Oh, you're actually going to like take this as an analogy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, is, I'm going with This I'm, is really I'm, happening. Okay. I'm running with this. Strap in, everybody. This is Bill McBride <laughs> at his finest. We're going to eat an elephant in the catacombs one bite at a time. So <laughs> the catacombs are debt, right? So- we hear this word debt so much as a pejorative term, and, and um, we want to talk about this scary place buried underneath the market that nobody wants to visit, much less live. But we're going to negate this entirely beautifully constructed metaphor today, and we're going we're gonna to ask, how do we feel about debt? Or simply put, how do you feel about debt? Is it good or bad for you, right? Do you feel what is mathematically correct about debt. So we're going to differentiate the math and the emotion of it. Uh, you might have to pause this episode because it, it's going to be a little unsettling to rethink how you've thought about debt your whole life. Um, but see it through to the end because it is important. It is at the core of what we try to do here on Dollars and Sensibilities, which is to keep you thinking about the ongoing battle between math and emotion. And to quote one of my favorite movies of all, Hot Tub Time Machine, uh, your heart is a liar. So going to go over the general concepts of de- uh, debt today, give some examples. Keep in mind, the examples are just that. Your numbers were, are going to be different. Listen with an ear for the concept. Put the calculator away and just kind of kind of get the point here without getting the, uh, without the math. So the two main, times of, uh, main types of debt we're going to cover are mortgages and credit cards. So let's dig in. Mortgages. 
from Latin and Old French, meaning dead pledge. Uh, and I've heard this before, as I'm sure you have, Andrew. Uh, you know, people used to say, well, mortgage is from the Greek, meaning death grip. The word itself, whatever the etymology may be, uh, it has a negative connotation, right? Yes. And I'm familiar with some of the history of the, the word, but I think that when people think about good debt or bad debt, mortgages are typically the type of debt that that they want, right? They they're like, oh, like mortgages are good debt, or that's you know that's okay debt, or that's the debt they're most comfortable using because it is used to buy, in most oftentimes, an individual's largest investment, a home, their home, their primary residence, a place where they're going to live, sometimes for their entire life, right? 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years, sometimes shorter, but it's a lar- it represents a large investment, one that certainly many Americans today cannot just simply pay cash for the home that they want to live in. But it's interesting that the historical context, the root of the word, has this very negative connotation to it and where it's shifted in culture and its use throughout time to now being something people are very comfortable with, I would say by and large. Right. And I I think people have gotten too comfortable with it, which is what we're going to uh, address. Right. So too comfortable to the point of they love to say, hey, because this is a tangible asset. Right. And because this is something uh, that feels like a legacy. And I'll think about those two words, tangible and legacy. Right. We all love that. We all have the idea. Hey, I can touch it. It's mine. Um, So people like to say I paid off my mortgage. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's something we hear as a lifelong goal. Uh, and then asked why, uh, we hear an answer of, well, it will feel good. I owe no, I, I don't owe anybody. All my assets are mine. I can put my hand on my front door and nobody can take it away from me. Right. It feels good to say these things, but is it smart? Is it practical? Does the math really add up? Right. What do you mean? Like, so what, what math are you referring to? Like paying, paying a bank for 30 years or paying your mortgage off? We're going we're gonna to hit both. So let's take an over, oversimplified example, okay? Remember, put away the calculator, the concept here. William and Mary Jones, 40-year-old couple, uh, couple each make $50,000 a year for a combined household income of 100000 They have two children. They have combined retirement accounts of 250,000 and 250,000 in bank accounts and brokerage accounts. Okay. So now they've got 500,000 in assets, annual income of 100,000. Okay. Yep. Now, let's say Mary's aunt passes away and leaves the family $500,000 cash, post tax, all things considered net, right? Now, they've been renting their whole lives and paying $2,000 a month. So what happens here? We've we've heard this. The first thing Mary says is, uh, William, we're going to take Aunt Margaret's money and we're going to buy a $500,000 house, $500,000 house and never pay rent again. And what do we hear from William, right? Well, I got a better idea. Let's buy 10 Bitcoins and we could buy a $2 million house by Christmas, right? So, you know. (laughs) Pretty extreme examples there between between William and and Mary. (laughs) Yes, but you know who's got the right idea, right? And you know, <laughs> William might argue last week that he had the right idea and spilt milk and all that. But so, no doubt, it would be a great feeling to not pay rent every month, no checks, and the largest expense is now gone. 
And then they could feel like they really focus on the kids' college accounts and beefing up the retirement savings. This is wrong. It's dead wrong, right? Here's the simple way to buy the house and why. The Joneses take $100,000 from Aunt Margaret's money and put 20% down on the home. Okay. So we're talking about buying that same $500,000 house. Okay. They then get a 30 year mortgage for 400,000. Let's just say at three and a half percent. Okay. This comes out to a mortgage payment of about $1,800 a month, a little bit less than what they were paying in rent. Okay. So wait, there's more. The 400,000 of Aunt Margaret's money is now still available. Investing that money conservatively, stocks, bonds, dividend producing stocks, whatever, getting five and a half percent will get them $22,000 a year. Okay. So if they take a hundred thousand of Aunt Margaret's money, use it for the down payment of the house, that money's gone. It's in the walls of the house, but they take the other 400,000 and they put it into an investment that makes five and a half percent. The mortgage now is paid to the penny almost, by the interest and gains of that 400000 So, So why go to all this trouble? Why not just write a check, have the house paid for? So this is an easy answer. 30 years from now, the house will be worth $2 million. If they bought it outright today and wrote the check, it would still be worth $2 million. If they do the 30-year mortgage, it would still be worth $2 million. The difference is with the mortgage, the Jones would still have an account with at least $400,000 at 70 years old. So the, the lesson here is for the, for the luxury of being able to say, hey, I don't have to write a check every month for my mortgage. You're also subliminally admitting, hey, I took every penny of Aunt Margaret's money and put it into the walls of this house that's going to appreciate regardless of how I finance it, right? So what are the other reasons why somebody would, somebody would do this? Well, hold on, hold on before you go to your other reasons. <laughs> let's, let's have a conversation about this because I think you're, you're missing a couple of really like key things here. One, <clears throat> and I get that you're making, you're trying to simplify the example yeah. with using kind of round numbers and, and things like that, pretty conservative investment estimates. You are assuming though, that the market returns five and a half percent a year compounded straight, which I think one is unrealistic. If we can just say, hey, on average, we think it's going to get that. I would agree with that. The problem is you're taking $22,000 out a year to pay pay for an expense. So there is there is a withdrawal now happening from from that account. You're going to be subject to sequence of return risk, right? So for listeners, that, that's essentially you're withdrawing money in, in a bad year. And the likelihood that over a 30-year period, you're going to experience a couple of bad years is highly probable. Not guaranteed, right. but it's probable. So now you're, you're subjecting yourself to sequence of return risk. You're also not comparing it to what their alternative would be. So let's say, by the way, this this very Irish Catholic family, right? William <laughs> Mary with Aunt Margaret. Right. I wonder, I wonder who wrote this example. Bill yeah. McBride from Philly, <laughs> from St. Joe's Prep. Anyway, uh, so I'll give you two guesses to what my mom's name it wasn't. Yeah, William. exactly. <laughs> so, so what if they took this five hundred thousand dollars, right? And now 
they have no rent payment, right? They have no housing expense except for, for taxes, but they can take the $2,000 that they've been paying in rent and they can now additionally save that, right? You're now going to put that into an investment account, earning your assumed 5.5% return, but not subject to sequence of return risk over a 30-year period of time or the assumption of when their mortgage would be paid off. You know how much money they would have? 24,000 times 30 at 5.5% compounded, right? $2 million. Right. <laughs> so so right. what happens is mathematically, you know, I think the old adage is six of one half dozen of the other. So your, your end result becomes the same. So who am I or who are you? Who is anybody to tell William and Mary what is more comforting to own that home and pay off all the debt or to take, you know, to take out loans and leverage and have be subject to that payment. I don't, I don't necessarily think that the math is 100% clear. Hey, finance the home and take out, take out the mortgage. I'm not saying that it's not either. I just think that that was a missing part of that example that you just made that needed, needed to be set. I get you. I hear you. I understand you. I feel what you're saying. I've felt that way before, but I'm going to disagree because of the 400,000 making five and a half percent. We're going to go to option three. What I said was option one. What you said was option two. Option three, right, is the $2,000 they were paying a month in rent, right? Use that to pay the mortgage. Forget using the dividends from Aunt Margaret's four hundred thousand that's left over, right? Let the four hundred thousand grow instead of saving two thousand dollars a month. And you know, I get what you're saying: dollar cost averaging, sequence of returns that can that can uh, be a, a little less risky. But when you're talking a thirty year time horizon, right, or even ten or five, if you can invest with that kind of time horizon, not use the dividends, and just keep on working. And using the two thousand dollars previously used in rent to to pay the the mortgage, then that four hundred thousand can be invested a little more aggressively. And then we're talking average returns of seven and a half, eight percent, right? Well, but no, 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 no. You're speculating now. So if you want to compare apples to apples, we need to assume the same rate of return. So we can't change rates of returns on all your different scenarios. No, we so can. If you assume, no, you can. can. <laughs> we, we we why we would is because I use five and a half percent because. If the intent was to have the feeling that Aunt Margaret's money was paying the mortgage on this place, then we pair back on the actual investments and make them dividend producing stocks and bonds, as opposed to, hey, we're going to keep using our rent money to pay this mortgage where Aunt Margaret gave us the down payment. And we're going to use the rest of Aunt Margaret's 400000 for so we can have $3 million 30 years from now. It's a much different investment, is it not? Uh, no, but my point is that if you are comparing what your potential options and what their mathematical outcome is going to be, the assumptions that you're using has to have to be the same. You can't change assumptions to make one outcome better. Uh, might I reference you to episode 12 of Dollars and Sensibilities, <laughs> Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. Those are damn lies. And they're your own damn lies. And you're just you're making oh. up assumptions to make a, a scenario seem better then because again, you're just spec you're just you're making an assumption. This is what no. oh I, I think I can invest, you know, greater so returns will be better. I like that that no, no, that no. does not hold weight for the for an individual listening right now to make that that assumption. 
that is not a very prudent way to go about making that assumption. So if you took that $400,000 and you used your $2,000 that you were paying in rent to now pay your, your mortgage payment and you saved your 400,000 and you didn't make any additional contributions and you invested it for, for 30 years and you got the same assumed rate of return, we're going to use that rate of return as a constant. You would have how much money? Give or take $2 million, right? right. You're going to have a couple of more dollars you know, you'll have a hundred thousand or so more investing the four hundred thousand, and just because you're you're going to start with a larger number, so your compounding effect will increase your your net dollars down the road, but but marginally, not not dramatically change my life in type of ways. You're going to fractionally end up with a little bit more money. So if you were to use that as the argument, fine, I'm okay with that, and say, hey, those those hundred and fifty thousand dollars more plus what you're about to talk about, right? Tax write offs and other benefits. I can use that, but you can't change the assumptions in your scenario. And any academic would, would agree with me. No, they I'm would. telling you, I'm telling you, this road forks in three different directions, right? You're only seeing two of them. The third direction is, and where, where, where I see the contention, you can't say, hey, you use a five and a half percent. This is what you're saying. I, I see a five and a half percent rate of return used in one scenario. And, uh, and then Bill, you're using an eight percent rate of return used in another, right? If the client is sitting in front of you and says, hey, Andrew, I want to uh, finance my home and I'm going to do a 30-year mortgage, I want this $400,000 interest to pay for it, doesn't that look like a much different portfolio if the client says, hey, you know what, Andrew, I'm paying $2,000 a month rent, I can handle this $2,000 a month mortgage, here's four hundred grand. tell me what this looks like in, in 30 years. That's a different I, investment for you. I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree, but you can't you can't promise anybody what future returns are going to be. So all of no, it's no. speculation. So so since all of it is speculation, for the basis to make a decision like this, you need to just assume the same rate of return. That that's just that just makes sense. That's smarter. But, but no, the risk tolerance, the risk tolerance and the time horizon. Well, listen, vastly- listen, let's have listeners comment below if you think <laughs> you should use the same rate of return assumptions or if you think you should be able to fudge the numbers and make up your own rate of return. <laughs> well, let's, re- let's rephrase that question, <laughs> listeners. If you think that an investment that is to produce current income should be invested differently than an investment that's to be used in 30 years, should there be different rates of return for them? Absolutely. Look, but there are not, there are other reasons why to do this. So let's let's talk not, about the other benefits that will come. And we I'm gonna do a real quick last word on this. I'm not buying Apple stock for the dividends. Okay. Thirty years from now, I'll buy Apple stock so I can harvest that in thirty years. All right, fine. Tax write off. <laughs> tax write off. What just about another, tax write off? Yeah, it's just another reason why you would do um, why you would do a mortgage, right? So. You know, tax laws change and the, the write-off amounts may vary, but it certainly speaks to not um, not laying down that cash and paying for a cash hundred or paying for a house hundred percent in cash, right? Um, well, in, in the interest of again allowing people to be educated and make their own decision, the tax write-off may or may not be pertinent, right? So right. as you alluded, tax laws can change. They did a couple of years ago, where now standard deductions are now doubled. So if you're a married couple filing jointly up to $24,000, you may not have mortgage interest expense. Remember, that's that's capped. So you may not have mortgage interest expense and other deductions 
great enough to actually generate you a real benefit. If you're if you're taking a standard deduction, twelve or twenty four thousand dollars a year, that may or may not be a, a rationale. But if you are, that certainly can be a benefit. Yeah, absolutely, something to consider. So. The other thing too, and this is going to bring you right back into into uh, the discussion of the rate of return, right? So, four hundred thousand invested should be getting more than five and a half percent, right? Depending on the investment. So, but let's just say you're getting more than five and a half percent. You know, all that is is, is growth as well, right? So. The, yeah, any, anything over and above the amount that you're using to pay your mortgage or distributing is your your net gain, right? right. So that that's gonna you know you, so, you're leveraging you're leveraging low interest rate, right? You're paying somebody else for the privilege of using their money while you're using your money to earn a greater assumptive rate of return, not a guaranteed rate of return, but an assumptive higher rate of return, which is just again it's it's risk that people may be comfortable with, but I don't think it's a clear, hey, this is the winner. Yeah. I mean, look, every situation is different. This is a concept. And the, and the concept here for mortgage and debt uh, as not being bad words, as being smart things to do, is that 30 years from now, your house is going to be worth whatever the house is worth based on its condition, location, square footage, all that stuff. It's going to be irrelevant whether you wrote a check and paid for that with Aunt Margaret's money back when you were 40 years old, or if you refinance a 30-year mortgage every six months for the last 30 years. Doesn't matter. The house is going to be worth. What you have to decide is, do you want any money in a bank or brokerage account after 30 years? I think the important takeaway for me on a conversation like this is a mortgage is being used to purchase a financial asset, right? Uh, you know, something that can hold its value, retain its value, and conceivably grow in value over a period of time, which is why people, despite its, its historical context, why people would consider this good debt. It's good debt because now I can, if I understand how to use it, Right in the right. the scenario that you laid out, I can now use this to accelerate my wealth at a greater rate than if I if I wasn't using this instrument. And now, now wait, what's the what's the you brought up a great point here. Now what's the over under here? Meaning, if you took that four hundred thousand, got the mortgage, and the mortgage is at three and a half percent, we said right. If you leave your money in a checking account, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. Then it's bad debt. Right, because you're not earning anything on the money. You're not earning more than you're paying. Right, right. So yeah. why, pay, why? Pay? And so, so that's gonna that's gonna segue into the next part here, which is uh, what's what's good debt, what's bad debt, credit cards. I'm saying bad debt. Uh, you know, I never say a hundred percent, but um, it's simple, right? So interest rates on credit cards are usually higher than what you can earn in an investment or savings account, just what we were talking about with the mortgage, okay? So anytime you're paying more than 7% interest, you're likely losing money in the long run. Um, and, and I've tried to find a better way to express this rule over years, um, something that's catchy or rhymes, but if your money makes a higher percent in dividends or interest than you were paying on your debt, that is good debt. If you're paying 17% of your credit cards and your investments are making 7%, 
that's bad debt. So. Was that supposed to rhyme? It didn't rhyme. It didn't. I've been, you know how long I struggle with it? I lay awake at night trying to rhyme stuff like this. Like, so, yeah, I mean, you know, high, high interest rate credit card debt is, is very, very toxic and can, I think the, the biggest problem with high interest rate credit card debt is it's so accessible. It's the right. easiest type of debt to get. You, you can literally get it as a student. They come to college campuses and they're, they're offering student credit cards and different types of products aimed at people who are, who are just less debt savvy. And the troubling part here is that is almost nine times out of 10 going to be the most expensive forms of debt. While things like mortgages and business loans and things like things that we could consider better forms of debt or lower, lower cost debt are just very inaccessible to a lot of people. There's a lot more hurdles to, to go through. Uh, the process is much longer. The qualifications are, are a lot more stringent. And that type of debt just isn't accessible to, to people. That's, Andrew, that's a great point. And actually, I, I hadn't thought of that. If you look at what it takes to get a mortgage, right? And you look at all the paperwork you have to go through, the qualifying and all that versus a credit card, right? That tells you right there what's good debt and what's bad debt. Good debt is hard to get, right? Bad debt's easy to get. So, so what's the lesson here? What are we trying to get people to rethink? Um, it's throwing away the, the positive thought of being debt-free and replacing it with the focus on what really matters financially, which is net worth. On day one of purchasing that house, the Joneses' net worth does not change. They can say they're debt-free, but they're not a penny richer than the family next door. However, if they do a simple mortgage on the home, it creates an increase in net worth of $800,000, right? So Aunt Margaret's $400,000 that wasn't put into the walls of the house is now $800,000 30 years later. That's a 40% difference in net worth. And it's significant, right? So you know, I've heard, Bill, I don't like to write out checks every month. It's a bad feeling. And, and I get it. But First of all, almost all mortgages now have a direct deduction from your checking account. So, but, but here's the fun part. I'm going to show you how eating the elephant one bite at a time equates to your pay. So I figured it out. It takes three minutes to write a check, roughly. And every month for 30 years comes out to 18 hours of work. That means you're making $44,444 an hour for writing those checks. So you can say you want to keep things simple, but you can't pass on a job that takes less than one day and you get paid $800,000. Agree? No, I, you lost me on that example. <laughs> okay. So the person that wants to, that doesn't want to write a check right? Because they don't want to pay the mortgage because they want to be debt-free, right? Yeah. One, of the, one of the things we hear about that is like, you know, it just feels good being free and clear, but we also hear, you know, I, it just feels good not having to sit down and write a check every month, right? Okay. Yes, we have direct deposit or direct deduction. So that's not an issue. Sure. For yeah, most yeah. No, but I, I follow, I'm following your example here. So three minutes to write a check, right? Three and minutes to write a check. And you every, do that. Month, every month for 30 years. So 360 checks. Right. 300, 360, 360 minutes you spend, which comes out to... No, 300, eight, 360 iterations of three minutes at a time, which would be 18 yeah. hours. Yes, yes. 18 hours. Correct. So 
if you make by doing it this way, by having a mortgage and you make $800,000, you still have the same house. Well, you, this is where you last me. Where, where are you making $800,000? So the 400,000 over the course of 30 years. Yes. Turns into 800,000. Okay. You're doubling your money. Right. Okay. Doubling your money, which is, which is weak, but remember it's only the difference between yep. what you used of your dividends, right? Now, okay. that number grows exponentially to 3.2 million if you keep paying rent out of your income, right? Okay. So, so look, the numbers vary. Uh, every situation is different. And there are a million other great arguments for good debt, building credit, the ability to leverage and get a bigger, nicer home more quickly are just a couple examples. Um, but there's no sound argument for not having good debt. And the behavioral finance lesson here is, it's not so much to change your mind, but, uh, but correct it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about manipulative statements. So yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I still, I still am not convinced even on your example that you're making 440,000 or $44,000 an hour. I get what you're saying, right? $800,000 divided by 18 turns out to be $44,000 an hour. It's called a fun vignette. Yeah. It, it's inaccurate, but we can, we can tear that apart another time. Uh, Absolutely. I am still not convinced after this podcast that either one is better or worse. And I'm even more convinced that our hypothetical Margaret and, and William or Mary and William should take the route that feels best to them. Because what I've learned is that when you feel confident about your financial decisions, you feel empowered about what you've done, you're going to live with a lot less stress. And the role of money in our lives is not to just accumulate more of it, but so that it can be a tool and a resource to reflect the lifestyle that we want to live. And if joy and happiness is not the ultimate goal, then I don't care if you have 400 or 800 or a million dollars, like none of it matters if you're miserable. And if stressing you out to make out mortgage payments makes you miserable, then use the cash. And now you have to devise a savings plan, right? The onus is on you to devise a savings plan to enable you to accumulate that same amount of money. Because as we looked about, looked at in our, our first little example there, mortgages, the net result is relatively the same, no matter what path you take. So you can, you can end up with the same amount of money going either route. The math is, is all the same. It is about what makes you feel the best. Yes. What makes you feel the best, but... What I'm getting at is you can, you should feel better about what is better for you, right? So if- But, but again, if, if the net result is not any different, then, then but no, the, the what is results, better- The net result's $800,000 difference. At the very not. least, at the very least, look, let's go back to the, the, back to the example. If you, if you get a, uh, a mortgage, right? And you were paying $2,000 a month rent anyway, 30 years from now, you put that 400,000 underneath your mattress, right? Right. What do you have? What do you have underneath your mattress 30 years from now? You got 400,000. Right. If you put it into the house, what do you got? Nothing. That's it. Right. So it's, it's about changing. Except for a paid off house. <laughs> right. But the house is still worth 2 million. So, so the mindset here is, Hey, let's try this. Right. Let's, let's not listen to kind of grandpa's idea of having to paid off house. And then three years down the road, if it's stressing you out, really killing you, writing the checks, you take the 400000 out of the brokerage account and you go pay off the house. Fine. Right? If it's really hurting your cardiovascular system, then, you know, 
by all means, anxiety, uh, mental health and physical health are more important than financial health. All right. Are you going to wrap this another up? Fan, another wrap. fantastic episode of Dollars and Sensibility. Every single Friday, we are dropping a new episode. We appreciate like, subscribe, share it with your friends. Bill, this, is, uh, this has been fun. <laughs> Indeed. All right. More of this. I'm Bill McBride. Andrew Martz. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Mars are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.